Assalamu alaikum and Ramadan Mubarak. Welcome back to Season 5 of the Islamic History Podcast. I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail. In this series, we are discussing the events of World War I that ultimately led to the partition of the Ottoman Empire. This is Episode 517, The British and Mesopotamia. Before we get into the episode, let's do a brief recap of where we are so far. As the Gallipoli campaign ground into a bloody stalemate, the Allies explored alternative ideas. The British began negotiating with Sharif Hussein to rebel against the Ottomans. The British and French were also secretly negotiating with each other to divide the Middle East. Some believed an Arab revolt could topple the Ottomans, others believed it was a waste of time. The Allies were not willing to divert resources from Europe to fight in the Middle East. They believed the main focus of the war was Europe and the Ottomans were an afterthought. And with that, let's begin our discussion of the Siege of Kut. The Marshes of Mesopotamia The Tigris River originates in the Taurus Mountains of eastern Turkey. From there, it snakes its way through Anatolia, then down through Iraq, passing through the cities of Mosul, Baghdad, and Basra before emptying into the Persian Gulf. As it passes through southeastern Iraq, the Tigris drops nearly 80 meters in elevation. This steep decline allows the river to bring mineral-rich sediment from the highland regions down to the lowlands. Various distributaries of the Tigris carry the sediment along, creating one of the most fertile regions in the world. A distributary is the opposite of a tributary. A tributary feeds into a larger body of water, while a distributary branches off from it. This fertile region was the birthplace of various ancient civilizations such as the Sumerians, Akkadians, and Babylonians. The abundance of agriculture provided for a larger population which allowed ambitious empires to build complex governments and large armies. The geography of this region stands in stark contrast to the surrounding areas. Once you move away from the river and its tributaries and distributaries, you are faced with harsh, barren, unforgivable desert. But the fertile lands of the Tigris floodplain are lush, green, and marshy. The banks of the river and its various branches are covered in tall grasses and reeds. The inhabitants of this region, generally known as Marsh Arabs, navigate the rivers and its islands in narrow, handmade canoes pushed along by long wooden poles. The Marsh Arabs live in small villages with houses built from dried reeds pulled directly from the river. Some of these houses were even built on tiny islands formed from the reeds growing out of the river. The grass houses were indistinguishable from the grass islands, making them look as if they were floating on water. Before modern development and warfare destroyed much of this region, it was also home to several species of wildlife. This included migratory birds such as pelicans and herons, as well as native species such as egrets, porcupines, and bandicoots. Ottoman Artillery Before the war started, the Ottomans had worked hard to modernize their military. However, they, like many Muslim countries today, depended on Western nations for their armaments. 
Rather than develop their own military industrial capabilities, they had weapons contracts with various German manufacturers. These deals helped bring the Ottomans more in line with other nations, but that made them dependent on the Germans for all their military needs. The Ottomans could not even manufacture the ammunition for their German-made weapons. Unfortunately for the Ottomans, they suffered a severe setback when they were defeated during the Balkan Wars of 1912 and 1913. Hence, they entered World War I having lost much of their stockpile of weapons. Before Bulgaria entered the war, the Ottomans were cut off from Germany, their primary weapons supplier. This problem was alleviated when Bulgaria joined on the side of the Central Powers in late 1915. The nations that made up the Central Powers now created a single mass stretching from Germany to Arabia. With the connection to Germany re-established, the Ottomans were able to bring in more weapons including modern rifles and artillery. The primary artillery piece the Ottomans used was the 77mm Krupp 96 with a firing range of 7,800 meters or nearly 5 miles. Despite these imports from Germany, the Ottomans were never able to fully replenish their weapon supply. Continuous losses to the Russians and British meant the Ottomans lost weapons faster than they could replace them. Throughout much of the war, the Ottomans had to depend on older artillery, some of it dating back to the American Civil War. This obviously put the Ottomans at a distinct disadvantage in most of their military conflicts. Sometimes they were able to capture enemy artillery pieces, but without adequate ammunition, these made little difference. Hence, the Ottomans suffered from a weapons deficiency throughout much of the war. The British Invasion of Mesopotamia Before World War I broke out, the United Kingdom had ordered a reserve force from India to protect its oil refinery on Abadan Island in Shat al-Arab. Shat al-Arab is a river formed by the joining of the Euphrates and Tigris rivers. It flows through the Basra region and empties into the top of the Persian Gulf. The British Indian Reserve Force departed India the day after the Ottomans entered the war in November 1914. The declaration of war changed its mission from protecting British interests in Mesopotamia to invading Ottoman territory. The Ottomans had a fortress at the port town of Fao, right on the shores of the Persian Gulf about 50 miles northwest of Kuwait. Allied warships bombarded this fortress while the Indian Reserve stormed the beaches. By November 8, 1914, the British had taken Fao and much of the surrounding coastal region. Once they had established a beachhead, the Indian reserves continued moving upriver. Two weeks later, the British captured Basra about 50 miles northwest of their original landing. The British commanding officer, General John Nixon, had no real plans nor objectives. He simply wanted to capture as much territory as possible. General John Nixon intended to use Basra as a launch pad for deeper incursions into Iraq. And now that the British occupied Basra, they turned it into their temporary military headquarters in Mesopotamia. This allowed them to bring in supplies, equipment, and reinforcements. The Ottoman forces that were driven out of Basra retreated to Kurna, a town about 36 miles northwest of Basra. 
Four months later, in April 1915, they launched an offensive to retake Basra, which became known as the Battle of Sheba. However, the British beat them back and the Ottomans had to retreat yet again. For the next six months, the British went on the offensive, pushing the Ottomans out of southern Iraq and making their way north towards Baghdad. In June 1915, the British attacked and defeated the Ottomans at Amara, about 90 miles north of Basra. In July 1915, the British again defeated the Ottomans at Nasiriyah, 72 miles southwest of Amara. In September 1915, the British and Ottomans clashed near a village called Kut al-Amara, about halfway between Baghdad and the Persian Gulf. Once again, the British were victorious. As the British drove deeper into Mesopotamia, Ottoman governmental authority fell apart. This allowed a group of local Arab tribes near Karbala to briefly declare an independent state. With this string of victories, British General John Nixon felt the capture of Baghdad was inevitable. He ordered his subordinate, General Charles Townshend, to march on Baghdad which led to the Battle of Tessifan in November 1915. And this is where the British luck ran out. The reserve force that had come over from India was not equipped for a sustained attack on a city like Baghdad. But General Nixon's arrogance led him to believe the city could be taken with light arms in a few riverboats. Tessifan, also known as Madain in Arabic, was the ancient capital of the Persian Sassanid Empire. Located about 16 miles southwest of Baghdad, it took the British nearly two months to get there from Kutalamara. There are several reasons for their slow progress up the Tigris River. For one thing, General Townshend disagreed with General Nixon's plan to capture Baghdad and took his time getting there. The British had also gone too far too fast into Mesopotamia, stretching their supply lines to the breaking point. The lack of infrastructure meant there were no roads or rails, so the British had to travel on foot. And finally, they did not have adequate medical supplies for such a long and drawn-out expedition through the Mesopotamian marshes. The thick marshes were infested with flies and mosquitoes. British soldiers fell sick by the hundreds, and many of them died due to the lack of medical supplies. And they were surrounded by harsh deserts and mountains, and the temperature was very hot and dry. All that just made things even more miserable for the British. This provided the Ottoman general defending Tessifan, Nuruddin Pasha, ample time to prepare. General Nuruddin Pasha ordered two lines of trenches dug. Then he fortified a large wall to supplement those defenses. He mined the nearby river with explosives, then set up artillery on a hill to fire down on it. So when the British opened fire on Tessifan at daybreak on November 21, 1915, the Ottomans were ready. The British attacked Tessifan head-on with three columns. A fourth column, supported by British gunboats, swept around the city to attack the Ottomans from behind. The British gunboats were small, light ships meant for operations in rivers and shallow waters. Despite their small size, they were well-armored and equipped with powerful cannons for firing on riverside fortifications. These insect-class boats, as the British called them, were often named after bugs such as the HMS Gnat and the HMS Tarantula. At nearly 240 feet in length, they could house a crew of up to 60 sailors. 
Despite this impressive arsenal, the British plans quickly fell apart. The Ottomans were able to hold off two of the three attacking British columns. The third one broke through Ottoman defenses, though at a heavy cost. The fourth column that was trying to flank the Ottomans got bogged down when they clashed with the local Marsh Arabs loyal to the empire. The gunboats that were supporting them were ineffective as they had to move very slowly to avoid the mines. Meanwhile, the artillery battery General Nuruddin Pasha had placed on the hill kept the gunboats well out of range. After several hours of heavy fighting and casualties on both sides, the Ottomans retreated to their second line of defense. The British, thinking they were winning, followed behind the Ottomans and quickly occupied the abandoned trenches. The next day, the British again tried to outflank the Ottomans and were once again repulsed. The brief Ottoman retreat was a tactical move and General Nuruddin was still in control. He went on the offensive and attempted to regain his first line of trenches. This proved to be unwise as the Ottomans lost nearly 6,000 men in the effort. By the third day, both sides had begun to withdraw from the battle. General Nuruddin Pasha wanted to fall back to Baghdad where he could resupply and get reinforcements. General Townshend had lost almost a third of his forces, including an additional 2,000 men during Nuruddin Pasha's offensive. He had also learned that 30,000 more Ottoman troops from Persia were on their way to Baghdad. With all this in mind, General Townshend, who did not like the idea of attacking Baghdad in the first place, decided it was a lost cause and time to retreat back to Basra. When General Nuruddin realized the British were retreating, he canceled his own retreat and went in pursuit. The Siege of Kutalamara The British were now in a desperate running retreat as they fled nearly a hundred miles down the Tigris River. With the Ottomans hot on their heels, both sides clashed frequently, further whittling away at the British forces. Basra was still 150 miles away and General Townshend knew his troops would never make it that far. So he decided to make a final stand. On December 7, 1915, the remaining British troops occupied a fortress in the village of Kutalamara. This fortress was on a small peninsula created by a loop in the Tigris River. Surrounded by water on three sides, it was easy to defend. By this time, the Ottoman pursuit was taken over by the legendary German general Kolmar von der Goltz. He positioned Ottoman troops on the opposite side of the river facing the fortress. He positioned additional troops beyond the fortress, blocking the single land route. Then General von der Goltz personally led more troops downriver to head off any British reinforcements coming up from Basra. The British Indian soldiers at Kuta Lamado had enough provisions to last for four months. Their leader, General Townshend, could have simply hunkered down and endured until reinforcements came. Instead, he panicked and sent an urgent cable to Basra claiming that he only had enough supplies to last one month. Thinking the soldiers at Kutalamada were on the brink of destruction, the British military threw together various poorly planned rescue missions. Each attempt the British made at rescuing General Townshend and his troops was beaten back by the Ottomans. The first rescue attempt took place in early January 1916. Three divisions of Indian troops had recently arrived in Basra, bringing the British presence there to nearly 60,000. 19,000 soldiers headed upriver towards Kutalamara, hoping to break the siege. 
However, General Nuruddin Pasha had planned for this and stationed 22,000 Ottoman troops on both sides of the river at a village called Sheikh Saad. Supplemented with nearly 70 pieces of artillery and machine guns, fighting the Ottoman defenses was like going through a buzzsaw. The British rescue mission lost nearly a fifth of their numbers before calling it off and returning to Basra. Confident his forces should be able to beat the Ottomans, General Nixon ordered another rescue attempt a week later. This time, the Ottoman forces were led by General Khalil Pasha, who was the uncle of Enver Pasha. Khalil Pasha had recently arrived from Anatolia where he'd overseen parts of the Armenian deportations. Khalil Pasha, who allegedly boasted of killing 300,000 Armenians, replaced General Nuruddin, who was reassigned elsewhere. Once again, the British underestimated their Ottoman opponents and suffered terribly for it. Another 2,000 Indian soldiers were killed before this second rescue mission was called off. Undeterred, General Nixon ordered yet another rescue mission a week later. This time, the British Indian troops were able to penetrate even deeper into Mesopotamia, but the result was still the same. General Khalil Pasha was feeling more confident than ever and had hidden various machine gun nests in the thick reeds of the marshes. As the British picked their way through the deep waters, they found themselves pinned down in a devastating crossfire. Another 3,000 men were lost and the British had nothing to show for it. Two months later, the British decided to give it another shot. General John Nixon had been recalled to London and his replacement, Sir Percival Lake, was determined to succeed where he had failed. Another rescue mission was ordered in early March and this time, the British threw everything they had at the Ottomans. 35,000 soldiers and 62 pieces of artillery headed upriver towards Kutalamara. The plan was for this force to attack the Ottomans from the south, while General Townshend and his men broke free from the fortress and attacked from the north. Despite its complexity, the British assault was doomed from the start. A heavy rain slowed down large segments of the British forces. Other troops moved independently and found themselves isolated and trapped in the thick marshes. When it was evident the southern attack was falling apart, General Townshend canceled his own assault. This failed rescue mission cost the British another 3,500 casualties. The British tried one last time in early April 1916. The details were somewhat different, but the result was the same. Thousands more British casualties and another humiliating retreat. By now, four months had passed, the Indian soldiers at Kutalamada were still under siege, and their supplies really were running out. The British government had given up on any further rescue missions, having already lost nearly 20,000 men in the various failed attempts. Instead, they resorted to diplomatic means to break the siege. They offered two million pounds sterling if the Ottomans released their soldiers. That would be nearly $240 million in today's money. Jamal Pasha, the Ottoman minister of war, promptly rejected the offer. The soldiers under siege at Kutalamada were slowly starving to death. British airplanes tried to airdrop supplies, but aerial technology was still primitive. Most of these supplies wound up sinking in the river or with the Ottomans. By the end of April, negotiations had fallen through and all hope of a rescue was gone. 
With many of his soldiers dead or dying of starvation, General Townshend knew it was time to give up. He ordered his men to destroy their guns, and they unconditionally surrendered to the Ottomans. The surviving British soldiers were then marched first to Baghdad and then to a prison camp in Anatolia. The defeat at Kutalamada is still considered one of the most shameful events in British military history. In the next episode, we'll travel west to the holy city of Mecca where Sharif Hussein is preparing to launch his Arab revolt. You've been listening to the Islamic History Podcast and we hope you've enjoyed the show. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Visit islamichistorypodcast.com slash WWI to find other episodes in this series. To learn more about the life of the last messenger of God, subscribe to our other show, The Prophet Muhammad Podcast. If you enjoyed these podcasts, please leave a five-star rating and review and share with your friends and family. The Islamic History Podcast is 100% listener-supported. You can support our work and get access to exclusive content by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash islamichistory. Stay tuned for a brief clip from one of these premium shows. Or, to make a one-time donation, visit islamichistorypodcast.com slash donate. Special thanks to Brother Zofi Kasiroj for his research and support of the show, and thanks to all of our Patreon subscribers. Until next time, my name is Mutaki Ismail for the Islamic History Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to Islamic History Exclusive. This is the podcast exclusively for Patreon subscribers of the Islamic History Podcast. We are currently discussing the rebellion of Ibn Zubair against the Umayyads, and we are currently on the eighth episode of this series. We are going to continue our discussion of the battle of Battle of Ainul Warada between the penitents and the Umayyads. But before we do that, a quick recap of the previous episode. The penitents were a group of Shiites, uh, and mostly in Kufa, who, we, who were determined to get vengeance for the events of Karbala. They had been, been out planning and recruiting, and by the time of uh, our stories begins, they have a roster of 16,000 men who have pledged to avenge Hussein ibn Ali's death at Karbala. However, when it uh, was time to actually go out and uh, go to battle, only about 4,000 penitents actually showed up, and the penitents would lose many more men as they made their journey from Kufa to Syria. The governor of Kufa was a man named Abdullah ibn Yazid. He was a supporter of 
uh, Ibn Zubair. He was Ibn Zubair's governor, basically. Him and several others had tried to encourage the penitents, and their leader, a man named Suleiman Ibn Sarad, tried to encourage him and offer alternative courses of action. The governor, Abdullah ibn Yazid, he had suggested the penitents work along with Ibn Zubair against the Umayyads, who was their common enemy. And uh, some other penitents within within the penitent group, they had suggested that rather than going out and uh, traveling all these hundreds of miles to fight against the Syrians, they could just go ahead and hunt down those people within Kufa who were responsible for Hussein's death. And even after the penitents had left, they met up with a chief at a town uh, named Kodakasiya. The chief's name was Zafar. This chief had suggested that the penitents stay in his town, which was fortified. They could fortify themselves within the town. Against the Syrians, they would stand a much better chance. The penitent leader, Suleiman ibn Sarad, he had rejected all of these suggestions. His plan was to go ahead and head to Syria, find Obedullah ibn Ziyad, and punish him or die trying. So, as the penitents had, after they had set out, they had traveled pretty much most of the way to Syria, they had learned that a, an Umayyad army, a Syrian army, was on their way, and that the uh, penitents were greatly outnumbered. 